0: by the red light. The red light is on when the trap door opens at the podium. So um, I don't think either anybody here needs a refresher on, on the lighting system, right? All right, Mr. Clement, take it away.
1: Thank you, Your Honor. Good afternoon, and may it please the court. In March and April of last year, the nation faced an unprecedented health crisis that threatened the nation's food supply as the panicked nation stockpiled foods and left grocery stores bare. Thus, at the same time that federal officers encouraged most employers to close their physical workspaces and governors ordered people to stay at home, federal officials told food suppliers and workers that they had a special responsibility to work hand-in-hand with the federal government so that Americans would have access to food and panic stockpiling would cease. In the pandemic's early days, much about the virus and how it spread was unclear. But one thing was clear. Federal officials exhorted food suppliers to keep their facilities operational and viewed those continued operations as so critical that the president issued an executive order under the DPA, the Defense Production Act. Now, even during normal times, meat processing facilities operate under an unusual degree of federal supervision and control. Almost unique among industries, they cannot operate unless a federal inspector is physically premised on the premises, but even so, during normal times Tyson Foods has never invoked federal officer removal.
2: Council I hate, I hate to interrupt you so early, but what you just said raises the question I was going to ask you. So now maybe is a good time. What did Tyson do? What what difference was there in what Tyson did on a day-to-day basis as opposed to what they did after the the instruction after the involvement of the government that you claim creates federal jurisdiction?
1: Well, Your Honor, there's, I, I want to answer that in sort of practical terms and legal okay. terms. In practical terms, as soon as the president issued his declaration in mid-March, they had conversations with the president himself, CEO of Tyson's and others, and they were told they were going to be working hand in hand. In the ensuing days, they had communications with officials that they never had communications with before. They're used to dealing with the agriculture department. They're not used to dealing with the critical infrastructure agency. They're not used to dealing with the Department of Homeland Security. So they had those operations. There were efforts to get them PPE on a preferred basis and and make sure that there were enough uh, inspectors there. Um, the inspectors, you know, they're again they're they're there in normal times, but there isn't this kind of communication where okay, we got to make sure there are enough inspectors and we got to make sure that the inspectors are both safe, but they're also not the source of the disease for the workers. So we're going to go through a whole protocol where you can ask them certain questions. You can ask whether their temperature is above literally a specified level. And you can use a thermometer on their head, but you can't ask them for a written questionnaire. All of that is not something that happens during normal times. The more doctrinal point is, during normal times, Tyson would make the decision about whether to remain operational without a heavy federal thumb on the scale of remaining operational. With respect to these informal activities, and then particularly once you have the executive order on April 28th and the follow-up letter from the Secretary of Agriculture on May 5th, the calculus has changed. These are not normal times where Tyson just makes the decision whether to remain operational or whether there's a disease that forces them to... Shut down the facility. They are being told, um, now, you know, they didn't, it wasn't a command, it was an exhortation, or by the way, we have these other authorities we can invoke under the DPA. But they were exhorted to remain operational, or to the extent they were closed, to resume operationals.
2: Just just to clarify, when you use the word operational in the course of processing meat, poultry, whatever have you, that Tyson generates as food, uh, was there any difference in that exercise before as opposed to after this communication with the government, the thumb on the scale that you mentioned?
1: So, I I mean, there, there were in the sense that as of April 26th, there was finally specific guidance from the CDC and OSHA as to, and it's in the record that, you know, literally shows you. Got to be six feet apart. That means that you can't have people across unless you have a partition. So, all of that was new. Um, and it wasn't just sort of helpful guidance because the executive order referenced it because it preceded the executive order, I think, by two days. And then the Secretary of Agriculture then reinforced that and said you have to remain operational or resume operations consistent with this CDC OSHA guidance that they never had under any other time. So, sure, they did change their operations as, as a result of the guidance and the force of this, but what I think most changed materially as a matter of law is the calculus as to whether or not to, consistent with that guidance, to remain operational or close down because too many people are getting sick. That, that changed because the federal government put the thumb on the scale.
2: Did the government suggest any change in... Volume of production. We need more this, more that, or we just need more food generally, or we need it shipped out faster, or to certain areas that were not being shipped and whatnot. Any of those t- kind of directions?
1: No, it was really more, you know, put the the pedal to the metal across the board, get as much as you can, remain operational with consistent with these guidelines. But but I think you know, if you go to look at the executive order carefully, you'll see that this executive order is a little bit different than maybe the classic sort of DPA executive order, because I think what your question gets to is, you know, we typically think of a classic DPA order that, okay, you're manufacturing these things and you're sending them to this civilian company, and we really want you to reprioritize that and send them to us. But if you look at the executive order itself, what is clearly motivating the president to act is the state orders that have caused some plants to become non-operational. And he clearly wants to override that. So the threat here is not sort of the traditional threat that you have a civilian priority when you need to have a military priority. It's almost as if the president's saying, you know, the concern here that is motivating us to act is that you are not fully operational because of state law, and we essentially want you to be operational as soon as possible, consistent with this federal direction. Now, we can quibble, and at some point, I'd like to have the opportunity to quibble in federal court, whether the sum total of the executive order and the May 5th letter has preemptive force. But surely there's at least a colorable argument for preemption based on that. And I think there is a more than colorable argument that at that point, we are operating under the direction of federal officials in a way that's analogous to the chauffeur all the way back in Maryland against Soper. And we're not operating the way we normally will, where we don't have that kind of federal thumb on the scale in favor of operations.
3: But this also applied to, uh, to other categories of essential workers. I'll use that term just for, I mean, clergy and medical providers I mean, others. I mean, are they all federal actors now or acting under?
1: Oh, absolutely not, Judge Wilson. And to be clear, though, you know, the that here that I think is most relevant is the executive order and the subsequent May 5th letter, and that is specific to this industry. It is specific to meat and poultry processors, and the OSHA guidance, the OSHA CDC guidance that the executive order references and the May 5th letter references is specific to this industry. So this is, and obviously I'm I'm well aware that the circuit has a prior decision involving nursing homes. but this is fundamentally different. We are not relying principally just on the fact that we, like many other industries, are critical infrastructure. We are relying on the fact that almost unique among those industries, I mean, there's DP, uh, there was an executive order for like ventilators and a few other things, that almost unique among all those industries, we were subject to an executive order that specifically talked about the fact that we were not fully operational, we had to shut down some lines. When I say we, I mean the whole industry, not just Tyson. we had to shut down lines because of specific state orders and if you just take a look at the executive order and the letter that follows i think what you'll see is that at this time period there's obviously a balance that needs to be struck here between keeping food on the shelves and worker safety and i think it's equally clear that the president did not want that balance to be struck on the state level because from the state's perspective, they're much more concerned about the health of their workers and their individual plant than they are about whether there's food on the shelves in New York or Los Angeles. And so the executive order is essentially restriking the balance. And it's saying, we now have, for the first time as of April 26th, we now have clear guidance from CDC and OSHA about how you run, not clergy, but meat packing and poultry packing plants. It's very specific, you know. There's, it, you know, it's kind of classic stuff where there's an illustration with a red light and says don't do this, and then there's you know three different green light options when you have partitions or you don't have workers across from each other, and then the federal government tells us, all right, I want you to stay operational as long as you can do it consistent with that CDC OSHA guidance, and I think if you think in practical terms about what could happen in state court here, I mean there's only two possibilities. Let's just take May 7th, you know, the complaints here are not limited to the earlier period. So, May 7th, you think that the, the, the plant was with you know, remained operational, and you think it should have closed, and you think it was negligent to stay open. Well, there's only two possibilities. Either their theory is you were negligent because you didn't comply with the CDC or OSHA guidance, and if that's the standard of care, it just shows that there's a federal degree of involvement here that's unprecedented in this industry. Or worse still, the argument is, forget about it. Wholly independent of whether you complied with the CDC or OSHA guidance, we have a different state law duty of care. And the duty of care is higher. You've got to have people eight feet apart. Now, in normal times, the state can do that, I suppose. I mean, put aside the PPIA and the FMIA, maybe there's a preemption issue there. But putting that one for aside, absent the DPA, in normal times, the state can say, yeah, we have a different, a higher duty of care. But here... I certainly think I have a colorable argument, I happen to think it's a correct argument, that that would be preempted by the actions of the federal government, because the federal government didn't want this to be an ordinary state tort case, where you're balancing the worker safety and the uh, food safety and all of that, and just as a matter of kind of local state law. There was essentially a federal override that's unique to the pandemic and the emergency that says no. We now have very specific federal guidance. we want you to be open as long as you can comply with that federal guidance.
3: Counsel, you mentioned the nursing home cases. So talk a little bit more about how those cases are distinguished from this one, because a lot of what you're talking about sounds, sounds very familiar to me with regard to the arguments that are made.
1: Well, Your Honor, there's no executive order in the nursing homes. Okay. There is no letter, obviously, from the Agriculture Department, but there's no comparable letter following up on the executive order. And and, and and there are other things I mean with the, with the with the nursing homes the president of the United States didn't tell reporters the day after the, he declared a national emergency that the federal government would be working hand in hand with the nursing homes he said that with respect to our industry because our industry had unique risks to it and had a unique impact that I just don't think the kind of garden variety critical infrastructure had
3: and what did the executive order, require Tyson to do? I mean, what, what did the executive order order them to do?
1: So the executive order is, you know, directly it is an order to the Secretary of Agriculture to, he, you to know, it, it's got really two parts. The first part is he makes a formal designation under the DPA. And that's the part where he says that in this context, and in this context alone, the the, the, the closing down of these plants is sufficiently problematic to the federal government's own interest that I am certifying that the preconditions for the Defense Production Act are
0: satisfied. But the That's, EO itself had no direct legal effect on Tyson.
1: Well, it's the second part then says, I am ordering the Secretary of the Agriculture to provide guidance that is consistent with the CDC to get these plants open.
0: A stakeholder letter.
1: Yeah, and then and it follows up on May 5th, with a stakeholder letter that exhorts us. And there's not a lot of, you know, in in a normal, well, I mean, first of all, Your Honor, this court has already recognized in the Eastern Airlines case, that in the context of the DPA, exhortations, jawboning, that counts. This court has held, that's that's good enough for an order under the DPA, and that makes perfect sense. And I would urge you to look specifically at the last two lines of the letter of May 5th from the Secretary of the Agriculture to the to the to the stakeholders? Because the two last two lines are this. The, the penultimate line says, I exhort you to remain operational consistent with the CDC OSHA guidance. And the very last line says, and I reserve the opportunity or the ability to invoke additional authorities under the DPA if necessary.
0: So did that stakeholder letter have legal effect? beyond exhorting, jawboning, admonishing, urging?
1: Yes. And I think it had legal effect in two ways. One, it underscores that at that point, we are operating under the federal government's control and direction. They are telling us they're telling us what we should do. Maybe they're not telling us what we absolutely positively must, but they are telling us what we should do, consistent with very specific federal direction from CDC and OSHA, That completely distinguishes this from the normal regulatory situation. In the normal regulatory situation, yeah, produce meat if you want as long as you can comply with our regs. Here, it's no. They've they've changed the dynamic fundamentally. You you must remain operational. You should remain operational. We exhort you to remain operational uh, as long as you comply with these guidance. And, oh, by the way, just in case this is kind of unclear to the slow kids, last line. We, we can actually order you to do this under the DPA. Now, under those circumstances, oh, I'm sorry. I, didn't I was having so much fun, I didn't notice the red light. I apologize. All right,
0: we'll see you back in a few minutes, Mr. Clement. Uh, Mr. Gould, uh, we'll hear from you now.
4: Good afternoon, and may it please the court. Andrew Gould for the Glenn and Chavez uh, Apollee, uh, Apollees. Nobody disputes that COVID-19 created extraordinary circumstances. But as this court understood in Mitchell, COVID-19 did not upend our system of federalism. It did not fundamentally rewrite the federal officer removal statute. And in that vein, acting alongside the government or hand in hand with the government as part of coordination and cooperation is not the same as acting under the government as part of a special relationship of subservience just as this court in Mitchell rejected the defendant's efforts to recast private health care companies as deputies of the federal government, so should this court join the A Circuit in Bulgic in rejecting Tyson's efforts to recast private food processors as engaged in a fundamentally government task. This court should affirm the district court's remand orders. I want to jump directly to some of the questions that were asked to my friend, Judge Englehart. Uh, The question you asked my friend was, what difference did all of this make? And the answer is, at least on the record, we can't see any difference that it made. Tyson had already made the decision from day one to remain open. There is nothing to suggest in the record that it was at all affected, that its decision to remain operational was at all affected by the president's statements, which, by the way, were not orders or directives, or even the executive order. Indeed, even jumping ahead to the executive order, which issued on April 28th, to the extent it is relevant, Tyson, as we know from the Bulgic case, the A Circuit discusses this, Tyson had closed one of its plants in Waterloo from April 22nd through May. And so if it was ordered to remain operational, how did it have the discretion then to close some of its plants? And indeed, that gets to one of the other comments that my friend said, and as he described it, he said, we want you to stay open. And he's exactly right. That is what the federal government wanted. But that is not what the federal officer removal statute requires it requires a delegation of authority it requires a government contract an employer employee relationship or a principal agent relationship or yes it can require an order or directive
3: now when counsel does an exhortation or pressure or we really want you to do this i mean when, when does it cross the line, in your view, then, if not under the executive order or under the um, stakeholder letter?
4: Sure, uh, Judge Wilson. I think actually Eastern Airlines is a great example of when it crosses the line to exceptional circumstances. And I'd in- encourage the court to look at that case. And there, there was an exceptional level of boning where the federal government had said, first, we're going to direct you to prioritize the military contracts over civilian contracts. And then as the uh, private industry pushed back, they said, fine, we're not going to order you, but as the quid pro quo, and that's the language from Eastern Airlines, as the quid pro quo, you're basically going to do it anyway. You're still gonna prioritize us. And there's a letter um, in the record from Eastern Airlines that discusses how their Uh, one of the, the government officials basically said, this is okay as long as this arrangement maintains. And so as even Eastern Airlines understood, and this is at page 995 of the Eastern Airlines opinion, there must be the quote, reality of coercion or quote, where compulsion is actually present. That was present in Eastern Airlines, that coercive effect that compulsive effect, because at that
3: point, you're acting under the government. Wouldn't, wouldn't uh, council opposite said this about the stakeholder letter, wouldn't the, the last line that says, by the way, we can make you do this, or there's other authorities we could invoke and et cetera. I mean, in, in, in the context of the pandemic where the world is shut down and people still need to eat, I mean, again, is that not enough? No. The effect uh, of compulsion? Excuse me, I'm sorry. Uh, no, in
4: our view, that, that's not
3: enough. That is mere
4: polite language that discusses, again, we're encouraging you to remain open, we want you to remain open, and it's under consideration. That's what the stakeholder letter says, that it's under that invoking the Defense Production Act is under consideration. And in fact, that's the important part of the executive order. The executive order is it is uniquely written, I'll, I'll agree with that. Because there, it says, it never orders Tyson or food processors to do anything. It says, I'm delegating the authority to the Secretary of Agriculture, the DPA authority, if necessary. And then what does the Secretary of Agriculture do? He sends the letter, right, to the governors and to the stakeholders, exhorting them to stay open. That's it. It's that one letter. And if you go on there... If you go on the website at the time for the USDA, they basically say, you know, we're not invoking this order at this time. It's under consideration. It may happen. And so again, Tyson was never ordered, officially ordered to stay open directly um, directly, or even indirectly. Its actions remained its own. There is no evidence in the record that the April 28th executive order changed their behavior that made it that they were about to close their plants or they were thinking about closing and instead they decided to uh reopen i want to turn um, if there uh, if there are no further questions on on that the language that kept being used in the reply brief in, in this case is cooperation and coordination
5: Cooperation
4: and coordination, even a a huge amount, does not create the requisite special relationship because all that is is acting alongside, not under. And the Mays case from the Sixth Circuit, which we cited in our brief, cooperation just merely creates a joint relationship. It's not one of subservience, as this court said in Mitchell. It's setting forth aspirations and expectations, not mandates. And as for coordination, that's just another way of saying regulation plus that under the pandemic, we were subjected to heightened regulation above and beyond what we normally would. And we probably don't dispute that, but again, Watson from the Supreme Court specifically rejected this notion of regulation plus, so did this court um, in Mitchell. And that's what the word coordination really means. If I can uh, jump with my remaining time to the colorable federal defense element. And it's our position that neither of the federal defenses that they've raised, whether it's preemption under the FMIA, PPIA, or the DPA, um, neither of them are colorable. They are plainly insubstantial as a matter of law. The FMIA and the PPIA fundamentally are meat and poultry inspection statutes. Indeed, in the reply brief at page 11, Although Tyson's talking about the acting underprong, they say that the government's interest changes from ensuring meat is properly inspected and labeled to maintaining the food supply. Well, putting aside whether the, the maintaining the food supply—that's true about properly ensuring that meat is ins- properly inspected and labeled. That's what the FMIA and PPIA do before the Fields District Court. There is no federal court, at least that we're aware of, that had ever construed the FMIA or PPIA to preempt ordinary state tort lawsuits based on unsafe workplace conditions, because unsafe workplace that's governed by OSHA and the OSHA Act, and the OSHA Act specifically disclaims that it's preemptive. And so all of a sudden, it would be, if, if, you, if you accept my friend's view of this, that would mean that all ordinary state tort lawsuits are, that, take, that are about unsafe work conditions at a federally regulated plant, will they be preempted by the FMIA and PPIA? It's a remarkable argument, and it's one that is plainly not supported by the text or the purpose um, of the statute. And finally, as to the Defense Production Act, well, the first part is that the Defense Production Act was never invoked. Um, And so the Defense Production Act was simply the Secretary of Agriculture could have acted under it, but he never actually exercised that authority. Even so, putting that to the side for a moment, as the A circuit and the federal circuit understand properly in Hercules and Vertec, the DPA just provides a limited contract immunity. It's simply an immunity that's based on contract prioritization. So, for example, if the government says, prioritize company A's contracts over company B's, then company B would have an... Excuse me, company A... uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting mixed up in my head. Tyson, if if it was Tyson, uh, if Tyson was prioritizing company A's contracts, Tyson would have an immunity if company B turned around and sued them. But again, there are no contracts um, at this case. And nor can Tyson rely on this nebulous mishmash of federal statements. None of that rises to the level of a rule order or directive. And before I get tongue tied again, if there are no further questions, um, I'll let my friend on the United States speak.
0: Okay, Mr. Thank, you Gould, thank you very much. We appreciate it. Uh, Ms. Powell, representing the United States, does the government have an official position on the pronunciation of amicus versus amicus?
5: I say amicus, Your Honor. Amicus? Speaking only for myself.
0: Oh, well, that's the official Texan pronunciation, also the name of our family dog at home, Amicus. So I appreciate that. So take it away, you got seven
5: minutes. Okay, please, the court, Lindsey Powell from the United States. What changed during the early weeks of the pandemic as relevant to this case is the importance with which the activities that Tyson was performing were viewed. The activities themselves did not change. So Tyson continued performing the same functions under the same private contracts that it continued to perform previously. It did so with federal encouragement and support, but there was no federal directive. And for that reason, this case really is on all fours with the Mitchell decision. Tyson is not different from the nursing home at issue in that case. In urging otherwise, Tyson points to the uh, executive order, um, briefly to the CDC guidance, and to the May 5th letter to stakeholders. And I would like to address each of those and explain why they, they do not serve to distinguish Mitchell. Um, As has been discussed to some extent, the executive order itself issued on April 28th, while specific to the food processing industry, while acknowledging the importance of the functions served by food processors, did not require Tyson to do anything or change anything. It was a delegation of authority to the Secretary of Agriculture, uh, noting that the predicates for exercise of DPA authority were met and that further action could be taken doesn't specify what that further action might be. It leaves broad discretion to the Secretary of Agriculture. The key thing is it doesn't require Tyson to do anything. In terms of Tyson's legal obligations at that point, nothing changed. It continued its ordinary operations under its typical private contracts, the same as it did before. And the May 5th letter underscores this point. So Tyson makes much of this today's argument. But going two sentences up from the language that was read to the panel um, moments ago, What the letter says is that plants should resume operations as soon as they are able after implementing the CDC OSHA guidance for the protection of workers. That guidance itself is not binding. Certainly, the federal government takes the view that it set forth best practices and should be followed. But the key word in that guidance and in this letter is should. It is not a directive. It is not binding. The letter also discusses, like many of the communications that are cited elsewhere uh, in these arguments, that the federal government will continue to work with state state and local authorities in maintaining the stability of the food supply. That's in this letter as well. This is not the federal government seizing production, threatening to seize production, taking in the reins. It's a cooperative effort. Undoubtedly, these are important activities, and cooperation was essential. But cooperation is not federal direction. There is no case that supports this. So Mitchell is... Um, Binding and uh, authoritative here. It covers these circumstances. The court's even more recent decision in Box versus Petrotel is also instructive. Admittedly, the circumstances are not um, as similar to those presented here as the nursing home case, which of course raises the same critical infrastructure designation and other um, truly identical facts. But in Petrotel, the um, Crucial thing that the, the court observed in distinguishing that case from the Butler case. So Petro Hotel involved a uh, oil and gas producer that entered into a cooperative arrangement with the government where it received um, certain uh, financing support and encouragement, was therefore subject to supervision. And it was argued in that case that it there was that provided a basis, that support and supervision provided a basis for uh, removal. Uh, as in the Butler case, which involved uh, rural electric cooperatives. And the court distinguished them based on the functions being performed. And it noted, this is what's so crucial here, that the uh, oil and gas company in Petrotel was a for-profit private entity that worked primarily for its own ends, and that it did not help or assist carry out the duties of the federal superior, notwithstanding the supervision and support that it provided, notwithstanding the cooperative federal relationship. And that same is true here. Undoubtedly, uh, the food supply is important. Undoubtedly, fuel production is important. And the federal government partners, cooperates, encourages a myriad of private actors, both in exigent circumstances and otherwise. There are grants provided. There are tax incentives provided. All sorts of partnerships of various shapes and forms. But none of those have been understood to transform private activities of this type into the type of federally directed conduct that serves to support uh, federal officer removal. So between the Mitchell decision and the Pet Hotel decision, uh, those two authorities are dispositive here. Uh, And again, the court should reject the idea that the uh, executive order or the May 5th letter served to distinguish Mitchell. The other thing that I wanted to touch on is the Eastern Airlines decision, which gets a lot of play, but really is fundamentally different. So there, the uh, party had a uh, federal contract to produce airline parts for the Department of Defense. And what was uh, informally required of the company in that case, and it, it was required, was to give those contracts priority over other private contracts. And that requirement was imposed informally. It was not done through order or regulation. It was not um, done by the, you know, certain procedures that the DPA would have authorized but it was nevertheless required. It was understood by that party that it must give those contracts priority. And here there is no comparable requirement. The only thing that Tyson suggests it was required-ish to do was remain operational, but as the Eighth Circuit observed, Tyson in fact shut down multiple plants, and that fact indicates, I'm quoting, that it retained complete independent discretion over the continuity of its operations. Your friend on the other side suggests that his takeaway
0: from Eastern Airlines is that Exhorting, job owning, imploring is
5: enough. These cases tend to be very fact-specific. And so again, even when we're talking about Eastern Airlines, we're not talking necessarily about federal direction and control. We're just talking about whether the DPA was even authorized, right? So Eastern Airlines was not a not a removal case. But as for whether the DPA was authorized, it's a statute that provides for specific actions by the federal government. Those actions are very important. Uh, but they are specific and Eastern Airlines concerned that specific exercise of authority, the prioritization of a federal contract. And again, it was, it was understood, even though informally expressed, as a requirement on that party. So certainly we take the position that the government may accomplish these things through informal means. But here, the various informal communications uh, to which the Tyson points did not require anything of it and did not go to any of those specific DPA authorities. There's no no question uh, when Tyson is talking about what it, it might have been required to do if um, the government were to exercise those authorities. It, do, it doesn't even point to what those specific things might be then, but certainly here there's no question that there was no pressure to assign priority to government contracts that didn't exist, making this case very different. Thank
0: you. Ms. Powell, thank you very much. <clears throat> Appreciate it, Mr. Clement. Um, you're back for five.
1: Thank you, Your Honor, just a few points in rebuttal. First of all, my friend on the other side said that the DPA wasn't invoked here. Uh, He's mistaken. The president invoked the DPA specifically in the executive order, specifically as to this industry. And the specific kind of phrase he used, although it's a direction to the Secretary of Agriculture, I think is worth focusing on. He says, quote, the Secretary of Agriculture shall take all appropriate action under the DPA to ensure meat and poultry processors continue operations consistent with the guidance for their operations jointly issued by the CDC and OSHA. So no nothing just sort of kind of encouraging about that. It's a specific direction for them to maintain their operations. Then as to the letter the Secretary of Agriculture sent to the stakeholders on May 5th. My friend describes the kind of last penultimate money line as just Kind of friendly advice. I think it's worth reading. Again, I'll quote. Quote again, comma. I exhort you to do this. Semicolon. Further action under the Executive Order and Defense Production Act is under consideration and will be taken if necessary. Period. End of quote. If any exhortation counts, and Eastern Airlines says that exhortations jawboning counts, that's about as firm and exhortation as you can get. I exhort, semicolon, other action under the DPA is under consideration and will be taken as necessary. My friend from the government made clear that under Eastern Airlines, the question is, is it an order? And Eastern Airlines stands for the proposition that it doesn't have to be an absolute command, that jawboning is enough. Here, there clearly was that kind of exhortation And it is very much worth recognizing that the DPA is not a statute just about prioritization. That's kind of its classic use, especially in some of its earlier applications. But the DPA generally, and probably most importantly, its preemption clause, doesn't use the word prioritization. It basically says that you can't be held liable directly or indirectly for actions taken inconsistent with an order under the DPA. And we know from Eastern Airlines that an order doesn't have to be an absolutely formal order. And that is exactly what my friends want to do to us in state court. They want to impose liability for us, on us, for actions taken inconsistently with that order. Because the order is stay open if you can do it consistent with the CDC and the OSHA guidelines. In state court, they are not limited to that. And if you look at their complaints, that's not their theory. Their theory is in the Glenn complaint, Governor Abbott told you to shut down on April 2nd. You didn't. You're basically negligent for not shutting down sooner. Same in the Chavez complaint. The Chavez complaint is even clearer, that none of this is limited to April 28th or actions before then. They talk about things before or after May 8th. So we are clearly in a time period that's covered by the executive order, by the May 5th letter, It is as firm an exhortation as you can imagine, and that's supposed to have preemptive effect under the DPA. We're not supposed to be liable for doing what the federal government told us to do. Just a couple of other minor points in a minute and a half. One minor point is the exhortation from the federal government was not to stay open at all costs, so the fact that we closed down one or two plants at various times is not inconsistent with our obligations. Our obligation was to operate, if we can do it, consistent with the CDC and OSHA guidance. There's nothing just kind of loose about this. The letter also gives us a specific email address we're supposed to send a notification to if we can't remain operational. Second minor point. There's been a lot of discussion about the Eighth Circuit decision. I think it's very important to recognize that the Eighth Circuit decided its case on the assumption that the allegations there, all the injuries took place before April 28th. It reserved the question about the executive order, the secretary's letter. All of that is front and center here. So you're not going to create a circuit split just by relying on the executive order and the secretary's uh, invocation. Last point, there's been a lot of this discussion about, well, we're a private company. We're just sort of doing what we're doing. Um, you could say the same thing about the classic federal officer res- removal case, Maryland against Soper. The chauffeur there was employed, the Supreme Court tells us, by the reliable transfer company. They were in the business of providing rides to people for money. The reason they were protected there was not because they, did- they made money or because they volunteered to do it. It was because they were doing it at the behest of a federal officer, and they were held liable in state court as a result. That's basis for removal. Thank you, Your Honor.
0: Okay, well, thank you, Council, for both sides. Um, we really appreciate kind of the top flight advocacy, both.